Hallelujah. Father, this morning we stand in awe of your great works and majesty evident all around us in the beauty of creation. Truly the heavens declare and the earth the same. The glory of the Lord and the firmament displays your handiwork. You, after all, from day four of this creation, established the sun to rule the day, even the moon to rule by night. And these things are signs for us of your majesty and your greatness. We stand in awe of your self-disclosure, your revelation through the course of history as you reveal to sinners the way of salvation. From the covenant language and prophecy and promise to Adam and to Eve, through to Abraham, on to Moses, on to David, and on to the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we stand in awe of how you have made known unto us the straight and the narrow way unto salvation. We stand in awe that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to indwell us through the power, the life-changing power, the regenerating force, Lord Jesus, of your will has awakened our hearts once dead in sin unto newness of life and now has born again believers. We see you, Lord, in the true contours of your glory as you give us grace to open our eyes. I pray this morning as your word is declared that you would show us from the pages of history on through the present and even as we see in your scripture promises yet in the future, your glory more still that we might treasure you, that we might worship you, that we might behold you in your glory and your goodness and be encouraged to proclaim the knowledge of salvation unto the lost as you give us opportunity to do so. And all of this, would you be glorified? And I pray that Christ would be lifted up among us and made great in our hearts and through us unto others. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. This morning we have the great privilege of opening up the scriptures together and beholding the holy, infallible, immutable word of God. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 89? Let us consider today verses 19 through 37. Verses 19 through 37 of Psalm 89. This is the second of three sections that I've divided Psalm 89 into, and the second sermon on this passage, this psalm, and next week, Lord willing, will be our final installment. Today's message comes to us under the title, The Throne of David. The throne meaning the seat of authority. The throne meaning the calling of David to rule as king of Israel. And more than this, the throne of David as the revelation or fulfillment of the covenant, the promise, the call that God had placed upon him. The aim of this morning's message is to demonstrate, through the preaching of his word today, the redemptive historical significance of God's covenant with David. God's covenant with David has historical significance and indeed redemptive significance for us even today. And this is evident, especially in the center section of Psalm 89, as we read, and is also the theme of Ethan, the Ezraite's words. So let us consider the Word of God today. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word again this morning? With your Bible open to Psalm 89, verse 19 through 37. Behold in your hearing the Holy Word of God. Of old... You spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Verse 30, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, 
If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever of faithful witnesses in the skies, Selah. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we noted last week, our first sermon on Psalm 89 of 3, this song of Ethan the Ezraites is laid out according to three major themes. Our first section was verses 1 through 18. And the, theme, the themes there are centered around praise and adoration for Yahweh, the great and only covenant-keeping God. Psalm 189, or I'm sorry, Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord uh, forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Ethan goes on to proclaim, to extol the Lord on account of the covenantal legacy of His faithfulness, on account of the cosmic displays of His glory, even the heavens that praise Him. He goes on and praises Him because the Lord has proven sovereign even in the geopolitical situation of nations, empires that rise and fall. And finally, he praises Him for the benefits, the covenantal benefits that the people of God enjoy on account of the Lord and His glory. This brings us to our text today, verses 19 through 37. And this section, the main emphasis is recounting the covenant terms that establish the hope and identity of the people of God. And namely, in our context today, the covenant that the Lord Yahweh made with David, his servant. There is a third section, which we'll cover, Lord willing, next week. And this section is a lament and an appeal to this covenant promise that he lays out in the center of the psalm, this lament and, the, and this appeal, the occasion is to give the Lord or to lift up to the Lord this request, this intercession, this prayer, this desperate plea on the grounds of his covenant that he would intervene because of the great hardships and the sufferings and the ill that has fallen upon, that is plaguing the nation of Israel. Verses 19 through 37, our text today, accordingly established the basis for Ethan's petition that God might answer the prayers of the few, the remnant, who remember His promises. Let me pause and ask you a question. Upon what grounds do you base your prayers? Do you make your requests known unto the Lord? Now it occurs to us, I'm sure, to you all the time to ask the Lord for things. Ethan asked the Lord for things. He asked the Lord for deliverance. He asked the Lord for help in his time of need. He asked the Lord for salvation from the circumstances that plagued his people, but he did so on the foundational basis of something. He made an appeal to the promises of God. He exalted the Lord. He extolled Him for these very things, and then he made his request known. As we've mentioned before, this follows the pattern of the Lord's prayer. May your name be made holy. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your purposes and promises be established. May they be the foundation even of our prayer requests. And even so, thus the prayer continues, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, and so forth. This is a similar pattern to that of Psalm 89, establishing the groundwork the basis upon which we make our appeal before we run to the Lord with our desperate request. Ethan has something to teach us about worship in this regard as well as prayer, and so we learn from his example today. Furthermore, let us note there are elements of formal covenant documentation featured in the center section. Ethan would appear as a scholar of covenant. He knows what it means when God establishes a relationship with the lesser authority. He recognizes the basic parts of covenant. Scholars have noted this as well. They've noted that covenant arrangements between greater and lesser kings of the ancient world invariably contain five basic parts. I mention these because 
all of these parts are evident in our section today. First part of a covenant would be the name, the disclosure of the glory of the greater king. And of course, in the context of our passage today, this comes to us in verses like 18 and 26, where Ethan the Ezraite introduces us to the great king by saying, Our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is the great king, second element of covenant. Historical prologue. This is the history of the relationship between the covenanted parties. And so we know a history in verses 19 through 25 of the Lord's relationship with this King David in particular. Third element of covenant, stipulations or laws. This would be the demands, the will of the greater king. Note verses 30 and 31. Fourthly, sanctions. This would be blessings and curses depending on faithfulness or fidelity to the covenant. These we note in verses 28 through 29, also 32. And then finally, administration. Provisions for the continuity, the duration of the agreement, the succession, that future generations would know these covenant terms. Verses 33 through 37 come to mind. This is a basic understanding of covenant, and to all five elements, Ethan appeals as he remembers and recounts the history of the relationship of Yahweh with Israel as a kingdom. Ethan recognizes the basis for his future hope is established on uh, verified documentation. It is established upon the unchanging promises of God which are written down in His Word, which are penned in the Lord's instructions through His prophets to His people, and they are sealed in stone. Now let me ask us another question this morning by way of introduction. How much more encouragement might we draw from this song realizing the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David, has been fulfilled beyond measure in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, our Savior and Lord. You see, when, Ezra, when I, he, Ethan, the Ezraite, was making his request known, he did so on the basis of promises made to David. Now, when we worship the Lord, when we ask Him for things, we do so on the basis of promises that are assured in the arrival, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. So the, uh, Psalm 89 is all the more potent for us, given the advantage of our situation in history, is it not? So let us look closely at our text today under this heading, Distinguishing Characteristics of the Davidic Covenant. It's important to learn about the covenant of David because this is a framework that helps us understand, again, the promises of God for the salvation of His people through the means that He deploys. So there's a heading for us today that could perhaps help us organize this center portion of Psalm 89, distinguishing characteristics of the Davidic covenant. Then I have four, four for you today. First of all, a sovereign call. One characteristic of the covenant with David is a sovereign calling. Secondly, a preeminent name, a name above all names indeed, is a feature of the Davidic covenant. Thirdly, stipulations. This would be blessings, law, and sanctions, aspects of the covenant, specifics. And, third, and fourthly, an everlasting administration. This covenant will endure forever. So that's my basic outline this morning, under distinguishing characteristics of the Davidic covenant. First of all, a sovereign call. Notice again verses 19 and 20. For of old, Ethan writes, or sings, for of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. <clears throat> I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. There is a sovereign calling that was the origin, the foundation of this covenant. These promises made to the people of God through the representative, the covenant head, if you will, David. This was a sovereign call. This was purely, exclusively the idea of the Lord of Yahweh Himself. He sought out His chosen one. He anointed Him. 
He decreed the same. He sent his prophet forth. This was him and him alone who is responsible for establishing the ground and foundation, the promise, the hope, the future, the salvation of the people of God. Nothing of humanism here. Nothing that man could accomplish or do. David is no hero outside what God has bequeathed to him sovereignly in this calling. Turn to 2 Samuel 7, 17. This is the historical background of the covenant that we have in view here. And Nathan is the prophet of God. He goes forth. We mentioned this text last week. This is in the background of Psalm 89 all the way through. But in 2 Samuel 7, 17... After we see these promises, such as, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These are promises of the enduring lineage of the kingdom of David. And then in closing, we have in this oracle, verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Nathan was given this word by a sovereign dictate, by vision from the Lord. So now in Psalm 89, 19, when our author writes, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, We know of what he speaks and of who he speaks. Who is the godly one? Well, that would be Nathan. Nathan who went forth and decreed the word of God to David, his servant, uh, Yahweh's servant, to be the king. Also, you could, you could extend this godly one to Samuel. Samuel, the prophet who went forth with the horn of oil and anointed David before this covenant was spoken to him by the prophet Nathan. These were the godly ones. And what did they bring? They brought the word of God, which was given to them by the Holy Spirit via vision. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, quote, I have granted help, help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. There is a sovereign call of David. This was a call that was prophesied. It was delivered by way of vision. It was given by way of prophecy through Samuel, through Nathan. And this was a call that went forth to a chosen one. This is one who was exalted, chosen from among the peoples, appointed. Genesis 4, 25 comes uh, to mind again. Do you remember the heart cry of Eve? She prayed that she would bear a son who would hold out hope for the future lineage, having received the promise in Genesis 3.15 that a future son would crush the serpent's head. And so, at the end of chapter 4, she receives another son, Seth by name, and of this one she exclaims that he is the appointed one. He is the exalted one, if you will. He is the one chosen from among the peoples. She recognizes that at particular times of God's choosing, He calls by His favor and sovereign ordination and decree alone certain individuals who will hold out or who will serve in His lineage of covenant faithfulness along the way, and thus salvation will come in His due course through His appointed ones. The anointing of David was a choosing from among his brothers. You remember the story, Samuel went forth and all of the brethren were paraded before him before the last and least likely from man's perspective was chosen, namely David. And this was to illustrate the sovereignty of God. God chooses whom He wills. He chooses according to His sovereign purposes from among all of these candidates we think might be preferable and says, no, I will set my favor upon Noah. He will build an ark for me. And instead of the, and in spite of the mockery of his companions, I will save all of mankind through eight people preserved as through baptism in this ark and will repopulate the earth. The Lord chose from among all of the brothers of David, one, the least likely, the youngest, the shepherd boy, the one who was overlooked and said, upon you, I will anoint you, I will anoint you and I will set my call and you will be the one who will be chosen by my name to hold out hope for the people of God by serving as my anointed agent in your kingly role. Turn to 1 Samuel 16. At the time of David's anointing, There is evidence of the Spirit of God rushing upon him, and it is profound indeed. And it emphasizes again to us the distinguishing characteristic of God's covenant is a sovereign call. In verse 13, 1 Samuel 16, Then Samuel took the horn of oil 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now notice a contrast. Here in verse 13, we have the Spirit of God rushing upon David. Verse 14, something opposite is occurring. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So we have a picture of a worldly king, a wicked king in Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from him, and he was now overcome, oppressed by evil spirits, tormenting him. Meanwhile, David was indwelt, so to speak, by the Spirit of God. Notice verse 18. One of the young men answered. There was a a plea, a call went out. Who can help uh, to calm the nerves of the king? Who can minister to him as he is practically out of his mind, out of sorts and so forth, tormented? One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent to speech, in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. There are six qualifiers in that one verse to evidence to show the effect of the Holy Spirit upon David, the called one. Because David had the Holy Spirit attending him, because God's favor was upon him, because there was a sovereign call on his life, he was skillful in playing his hymns and songs to the Lord. He was a man of valor. He was a man of war. He was prudent in speech. He was a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, this idea of the Holy Spirit resting upon the called is not foreign to us. If you are a believer in this room, it's for one reason alone. God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God irresistibly drew you from the sin, the only thing that you knew, like David, having been born in iniquity, placed his favor upon you, changed that heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, and caused you to cry out in worship and dependence on Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Messiah, your Savior. This was the work of the Holy Spirit upon you. This is the sovereign call that attends the covenants of the Lord. This was a sovereign call that was prefigured in David when the Holy Spirit singled him out, not because of his own importance, but because God chose to glorify himself through this vessel. Second, distinguishing characteristic of the Davidic covenant. We've covered a sovereign call. The second characteristic is a preeminent name. Preeminent meaning higher, above all others in control, more powerful than anything else. When the Scriptures refer to a name or the concept of naming, it's important to understand what's in view. A name is more than just an identity to distinguish you from others. You know, we have nicknames, we have people's names, and a lot of times they serve little more purpose than to identify you. So if someone calls, they know that you know they're talking to you. Names in Scripture are much more than this. They are descriptive of one's character. They reference their accomplishments. They speak to their position. They reference, if it is relevant, their authority, their influence, their renown, their accomplishments, and everything that attends them by way of reputation. There is a preeminent name that is associated with the covenant of David. And this preeminent name elevated the name of David to a degree of importance as well. We see this in verse 21 and following. Back in Psalm 89, So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. When the Lord sought to bless David and his kingdom and to establish him in this role, He, because of his great name, the Lord's great name, made David great. He gave him a conquering strength such that David's enemies never overcame him 
all of his life. From the day when he was young and slew Goliath, that great foe with, those, with a smooth stone among the five selected, against all odds, and surrounded by the jeers of the enemy camp, from that day to the day when Israel's last enemy that dared declare war on this small, little, out-of-the-way nation was finally defeated, David was mighty in war. God gave, he bequeathed to David, by the power of his own name, the reputation of a great warrior. The, uh, so much so that David, this holy anointed servant, it was proven in the course of his life and his tenure as king that no enemy could outwit him and the wicked could not humble him. Through the course of David's life, let me remind you that David was a type of what was to come. The Lord singled out David to show something of what the Messiah would be. Those who were expecting Jesus Christ to come knew in part what his office would hold when they looked upon David as an example that went before, a shadow of the substance to come, if you will. And the fact that none of David's enemies could outwit him militarily spoke to a future king of kings. In Matthew 4, that's the temptation of Jesus Christ, and whereas David was outwitted by Satan when it came to his moral composure, such was not the case with the Messiah. Not only is Jesus Christ victorious over all his enemies, but Satan could not outwit him in the area of sin either. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. More than this, we see on the ground of the Davidic promises of the covenant of David an expectation for the success of those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are the body of Christ. We are related to, through the connection of our union with the Lord, the son of David. And as such, the Bible describes us as more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Indeed, the Bible says that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Um, last week, I wrapped up my message, and we were getting ready to leave, and I checked the mail, uh, which is kind of part of my Sunday routine. I was going through the letters, and I noticed one that was hand-addressed from Arizona, a name I didn't recognize. And someone took, out the, took the time to buy the stamp, put the address, so I thought I'd read it. And my first impulse was, this is gibberish. I was going to throw it away. But then I noticed a phone number. Long story short, the letter read that by some numerological calculation that there were 1,260 years slash days from Augustine, who was the last uh, true representative of the church, to George Fox, who was the Quaker, who had a revelation that brought in the Philadelphian church age, which only lasted 70 or 90 years. And at the conclusion of this letter that this woman wrote, she said, there are no organized churches today that are not deceived. She's like, don't join the Quakers, don't join anybody. And I thought to myself, this letter is a blasphemy against the Davidic covenant. There is a promise. However small the remnant might be, there will always be a remnant. And the remnant is not, uh, it's not George Fox and company, <laughs> some goofy Quaker guy um, and some weird numerological calculation uh, pulled out of whole cloth that says, that uh, I have the special key to you know, the truth and, and there, there's almost nobody out there that's faithful. No, the Lord is faithful to preserve His church. And to the degree that you trust and believe that Jesus Christ is your Messiah, your only way of salvation, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is the fulfillment of this covenant language of old, you are counted among the true church of Jesus Christ. And however small, however unassuming we may be, we have promises that ultimately the enemy will not outwit the church of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell will not ultimately prevail against us because we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. The Lord has staked His preeminent name on the future, the fortunes of His body. Do you think that he will not erase eventually every blemish? Will he not be faithful to preserve her no matter how dark our culture may get? Yes, he will. He has staked his name on the endurance of his saints. And that is a great hope for us 
in Him, we have a hope and a stay that is not to be challenged by the enemy in any successful manner indeed. He will crush his foes before him and strike down all those who hate him. And the Lord's faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him. And in his name, his horn shall be exalted. That is to say, the strength of the church of Jesus Christ is always a reality so long as she gathers in the name of Jesus Christ, her Lord. There is a kingdom that was given to David. This language, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. This recalls Genesis 15, 18, the boundaries of the land promised in another covenant to Abraham to be his heritage eventually were true for David. And thus David ruled over this boundary from the Mediterranean Sea to, I believe, the Euphrates River. Thereabouts, these are geographical markers that symbolize a kingdom, a domain, a dominion claim. How big is the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord? Do you remember when we went through the book of Matthew? Have you been fellowshipping here for any length of time? Went through the book of Matthew. One of the major themes is the kingdom of God. And it struck me that almost all of Matthew fits into one of four categories, explaining to us the kingdom of Jesus Christ broken down by four basic elements. The sovereign, who is king. The subject, who is under him. The realm, the extent of his rule. Uh, and law, what he demands, his word, his decree, his will. Sovereign, subjects, realm, and law. Those are four basic elements of kingdom. Now for David, his subjects were those from the river to the sea, as it were, uh, from Mediterranean to the Euphrates. His realm extended that, and, and he was a king. And so his subjects were the Israelites of that time, and his law was that which he enforced of the law of God, according to Deuteronomy 17. But this was just a tiny picture of the kingdom to come. When Christ ascended before the Father, and in fulfillment of Daniel 7, was given the kingdom promised to Him as the rewards of His suffering here on earth, what do you think is the extent of the rule and the reign, the realm of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords? I'm guessing, you, I'm guessing you've guessed it. It is the entire universe and beyond if it could be said. There is nothing outside of the realm and rule of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why? Because the preeminent name of Yahweh is attached to the kingdom rule of the son of David. He is, that is, the son of David, in fact, the name above all names. There would come a day where the covenant heads like Abraham, like Moses, like Adam, like David, would give way to a covenant head that would be the ultimate fulfillment. Fulfillment beyond measure, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is said of Him in Ephesians 1 that He is, in fact, the name above all names. He is God in flesh. He is the one who is preeminently able to fulfill all that was prophesied of old. Let me just read a couple verses for you from this glorious text. This is Ephesians 1, as we pick up on the end of Paul's, as I recall, like 280-some word sentence. It's just amazing. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This was an answer to Ethan the Ezraite's prayer. He looked to the promises of David to give him a hope that there would be a son of David to come who would embody the name above all names, who would not only cry that God was his father, his God and his rock, but indeed was God in flesh. And of him it was truly said then in verse 27, Ultimately fulfilled, I will make him the firstborn, Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.5. That is the preeminent. I will make him preeminent, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so Jesus Christ fills those shoes. Shoes that, yes, even David could symbolically fulfill in part, but never ultimately fill. Sovereign call, preeminent name. 
Number three, distinguishing characteristics of the Davidic covenant, covenant with David, stipulations. These are blessings, law, and sanctions. These are the specifics of of covenant, the terms, the requirements, so to speak. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Notice as these blessings of the covenant of David are laid out, how they ultimately and only hinge on the benevolence of Yahweh. You could ask the question, how many of the blessings of the Davidic covenant were grounded in David himself? Zero, according to Psalm 89. The emphasis is on the greatness and benevolence of David? No, it's on the greatness and benevolence of the God of David, indeed, the Holy One of Israel. It is His steadfast love, it is His faithfulness that is celebrated, that is held out as the ultimate hope for the children of Israel through this psalm. David would die one day. He would die a weak and weary man, a pitiful sight indeed. His children would then begin to fight for his throne. And David's failure as a parent would be seen in part by his children who were not well disciplined all the time until one would arise like Solomon, but even Solomon had his faults, among them marrying some 1,000 or so women. Pretty dramatic how the uh, fortunes of the people of Israel, if you, set, if you uh, measured them by the holiness and by the righteousness and by the credibility of her kings, what a dismal picture that might be. Ethan the Ezraite recognizes that there is only hope, not in Israel's human, mere human kings, but in the shield that belongs to the Lord to His ultimate King, which is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who through His faithfulness and His steadfast love will keep His King and His promises forever. This morning, the children were studying, we have our our kids study this morning, we're studying one evidence of the Word of God. And one evidence, the evidence we covered this morning is the honesty of the Scriptures. And what was remarked is, no matter who the quote-unquote hero is in Scripture, whether it's David, Samson, Moses, Abraham, Noah, Jacob, so forth, no matter who they are, the Bible is honest about their faults, their frailties, their failings, their sin, as well as, by virtue of God's work through them, their exploits, the greatness of uh, of their reputation, if you will. In the case of David, his faults are prominently featured, an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, a thief. Who His, his son was killed, the first child of Bathsheba, was, uh, his life was taken for judgment for David's horrific sin. What did this illustrate? It illustrated that ultimately there was no hope in David himself. There was only hope ultimately in Yahweh, and he would provide the son of David in due course. More covenant stipulations, that's blessings. We move on to law. If his children forsake my law, if they do not walk, this is verse 30, according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep their, uh, my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, you can study it on your own time, but one of the commandments of the king was to write down word for word In his own hand, in his own writing, a copy of the law of God. Why? Because that was the rule of his kingdom. God had given him the ethics, the stipulations, the law, his will for how he should rule. He ruled as an agent, a deputy of the Lord. He did not rule as a king, sovereign of himself. There was no divine right in his person whereby he could exercise his rule and reign and do arbitrarily as he willed. No, that's... Satanism, that's humanism, that's the God of this world that convinces us we have a right to do such a thing. No, the law of the Lord stands as the eternal rule and standard for all legitimate kings. And this is evident in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And so there was consequences if this law was broken. And so far as the temporal aspect of the Davidic kingdom was concerned, because future sons of David violated the statutes and commandments, and the law of the Lord, the temporal kingdom came to an end. But listen to me closely. The eternal kingdom was not, did not come to an end. 
That is to say, the Lord kept His promise to David, not through Solomon or Solomon's son, but He kept His promise to David through the son in the lineage of David who was to come, Jesus Christ, whose eternal kingdom is unshakable and will never end. Uh, Psalm 30, or 89.32 says that among the consequences for breaking God's law is this punishment. Transgression, or for then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Brothers and sisters, if you read Isaiah 53, it is no accident that we see the son of David actually taking the punishment that sinners deserve on his own back and his own brow and his own pierced side, hands, and feet. Ultimately, because all mere humans break the law of God and deserve hell, Jesus Christ, the Son of David to come, is not only the King of kings, but He is also the sacrifice, who in His self, in His ministry, upon His body, took the rod and the stripes that your sin deserved. And so the stipulations, the requirements, the consequences the sanctions, the punishments, all of these things that a holy God requires in order for you to be in good standing with His covenant were actually taken by Christ our Lord. These things were the ultimate cost of covenant breaking. And while human kings fail, Jesus Christ would never fail. And in His body that was crucified on Calvary, He bore the cost of our covenant breaking. The cost of covenant breaking was ultimately paid by the sinless son of David. This is where ultimate hope for Ethan is held out through the promises of the covenant to David fulfilled in the son of David to come. Last point this morning, distinguishing characteristic of the Davidic covenant, we've covered a sovereign call, a preeminent name, stipulations, and finally, an everlasting administration. We know what an administration is. We have one for four or eight years, presidentially speaking, in our land. We call it the, this administration. Donald Trump is president of America right now. It's the Trump administration, so to speak. How long is the administration of the covenant of David? Is it four years? Is it eight years? Is it up for a vote? Is it a democracy? Is it a representative republic? Is it something that changes on a whim or with the ebbs and flows of history? No. The administration of the covenant of David is an everlasting, timeless duration. It is eternal. It is a ceaseless arrangement. Notice verse 33 through 37. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Let me stop right here. All young people, you guys want to play the stop game? All right, you remember how this goes. I give you a word, and when I say that word, you tell me to stop, okay? So the word is my when you hear the word my, say stop. Everybody ready? But I will not remove from him my step. So that's number one. Or be false to my faithfulness. Number two. I will not violate my covenant. That's number three. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Number four. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness. How many times did we hear the word my? Great job, you guys. You got them all. The word my is repeated five times in just these three verses, illustrating to us that this everlasting administration is something that God will establish, that God will do. David would fail. Solomon would fail. Solomon's lineage, David's lineage, human, merely humanly speaking, would fail. However, because God would accomplish this thing, this ultimate succession, this everlasting administration, according to His faithfulness, there was hope in the future. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, on your own time, of the Lord, it's said, of, of Paul writes, of Jesus, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. There is real gospel hope. You and I, in our sin, are faithless. We break our promises. We break our word. We're miserable failures when it comes to integrity and credibility. We could never be a covenant head. We could never be ultimately a good example. We pray that God would sanctify us, change us, so we are 
better law keepers in the future, but this only happens by virtue of His faithfulness working through us, by His Spirit changing us from the inside out, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Ultimately, the faithfulness for covenant keeping is rooted in Christ. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Thus, the covenant of David has an everlasting administration. David uses two heavenly metaphors to further drive his point home. In closing, let's consider them, verses 36 and 37, as we get closer to the close. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. These verses are parallel with verse 29. I will establish His offspring forever and His throne as the days of the heavens. The heavens and that which indwells the heavens, the sun and the moon, they represent, they, uh, they are symbols of, they're emblematic of that which outlasts earth. We mentioned this last week. That uh, with an eye towards the heavens, we see that which symbolizes what is surpassing, what will transcend, what is eternal. This brings us all the way back to the creation week, day four. The Lord set signs in the heavens. The sun to rule by, anyone know? Day, the moon to rule by, that's correct. So the sun and the moon have a calling from the Lord as heavenly lights and bodies to take charge, to obey His command, to shed light at night with respect to the moon, by day with respect to the sun. But these are a sign. They're metaphors in the sky of the eternal faithfulness of the Lord, of the everlasting administration of His covenant with His people. We can say it poetically like this, as long as the sun rise tomorrow, you can be certain that Jesus Christ it will be faithful to you, that His blood is sufficient to cover your sins, and that, you are prom- and that His promises are sure. We see this language throughout the Psalter, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And these things, of course, as a temporal example of that which is eternal, will eventually give way to the true sun. In the new heavens and new earth, Jesus Christ shines forth as the sun of that universe, so to speak. And His light never dims. And and in His glory, we walk and we exist. And so these temporal lights that we have right now are just a picture of what is to come. When the everlasting administration of the covenant of David is fulfilled to the nth degree. Turn with me to Acts 13. Let's cover a New Testament reference as we bring this message to a close. So, so far we've spent our time in the Old Covenant. Acts 13 tells us that the covenant to David is not only the foundation of hope for the saints of olden days before Christ came, but it's also a foundation for the proclamation of the apostles. And there is citations from the Psalms throughout Paul's sermon, and including one, it would seem, from Psalm 89 itself. So Paul stands up, he's in Antioch, this pagan city, and he's going to preach, verse 16. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. We don't have time to go through the whole sermon, but jump down to verse 22. And when he had removed him, so... Paul's proclaiming the message of the kingdom, the gospel. He says, When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as he promised. So do you see how the foundation of the covenant of David serves as the uh, foundation for the proclamation of the gospel in the new covenant as well? Jump down to verse 33. Paul furthermore says, This he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead... No more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
Now notice Paul's argument, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So David, his body saw corruption, verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Praise the Lord. So Paul announces one who has come as the son of David, who is incorruptible. David died, the son of David lives and rules and reigns from his throne in glory at the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews 1, right now. Have you bowed before his lordship? Have you sought his cleansing blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you found hope according to his covenant promises in the son of David who has come and died for your sins? If you trust and believe in him this day, I pray that you do so. I hope that you've done so. I hope that you hear the word of God today. Paul preaches in Antioch referencing the Psalms. The covenant with David, verses 22 through 23, 33 through 39, he demonstrates that this milestone in salvation history did not stand for old covenant hope alone, but is basic to new covenant gospel proclamation. That is to say, the prayers of Ethan the Ezraite from Psalm 89, and the promises of the Davidic covenant that we have read of this morning are fulfilled beyond measure in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of David. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank You for the message of Your Holy Scriptures from beginning to end beautifully lays out the power of our God. Your name is exalted, made known, proclaimed, emphasized with every page of our Scriptures. For this we are thankful, Lord, that You have revealed it to us. We, also, we are also thankful for the miracle of sight You have opened spiritual eyes to see the truth in this place. And this is because you, Lord, have resurrected us from the death of our sin. And for this, we are thankful. We pray that through the proclamation of your word, through the preaching of the same today, that you would draw the lost unto salvation if they have not repented of their sin. We pray that you would greatly equip and encourage your saints to continue knowing that we will not be defeated by the God of this age, But in and through Jesus Christ and in Him, Lord Jesus, we have assurance of an everlasting administration. Let us be faithful unto you, more obedient by the day, as we look forward, Lord, with a great hope to how you will continue to defeat your enemies in history until such time as the new heavens and new earth are the remaining reality for all the blood-bought saints. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.